When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my wonderful friends, and welcome back to the Neurodiverging Podcast. My name is Danielle Sullivan. I am your host. I'm so happy to be here today. Thanks for tuning in. Today, you have just me on my lonesome again. So as of recording right now in February, we are just finished week three of our six-week Collaborative Families Program, which is a neurodiverging signature program where we teach families the style of, of parenting called collaborative parenting, which is also known as democratic parenting. And one of the things we talk about, along with all of the sort of theoretical, why do we parent this way, and practical, how do we parent this way, is some things that you might need to know about your kiddo, or that might be helpful for you to understand about your kiddo, in order to adjust your parenting style to have the most success in building relationship together as a family. And one of the things that I see most commonly in my parenting clients, my parent coaching clients, is that a lot of the kiddos who come in show traits of neurodiversity other than what they are diagnosed with. I just want to say right up front, I am a coach. I am not a medical professional. I am not a trained therapist, right? But after a while of noticing this commonality and knowing that there are some sort of underdiagnosed or misunderstood, we'll say constellations of traits in a lot of these neurodivergent kiddos that are blocking parents from be able, being able to create relationship in the way we want, I thought it might be helpful to just do a podcast on some of the most common underdiagnosed or under understood um, sets of traits that I see in my parent coaching practice. And that, you you know, if any of these ring true to you, that might indicate some of what's going on that's blocking creation of a good um, empathetic co-creative relationship between parent and child in your home. And so today we're going to talk about five less than they should be understood <laughs> constellations of traits. You can think of them as diagnoses. In some places they are, but in America, we mostly think of these things as not existing in and of themselves, but as being attached to some other kind of diagnosis. I'll talk about that more in a minute. And of being like a set of traits, right? That existing together, create a different way of thinking or a different way of experiencing the world than um, folks without those traits. So that'll become more clear as I explain the traits themselves. Before I do that, I just want to say thank you so much to my patrons for supporting this episode. And thank you so much to the parents who are with me, this cohort of collaborative families. It's been such an honor to work with, with families in this way and such a privilege. And I'm just so excited to be doing this program. If you're interested in collaborative families, um, we run this cohort. Uh, it's the same program, but it runs about three times a year, a little bit depending on interest level. Our next cohort currently is scheduled to start in May. So if you are interested in learning more, I'll put a link below. You can also always email me or email us, and I'm happy to talk to you about it and see if it's a good fit or send you to other resources if it's not a good fit, because there are lots of really great um, parenting programs out there nowadays. So we're not for everybody, but I'm happy to help you sort that out. 
I also just want to say thank you so much to my patrons for offering their monthly support to make this podcast happen and to make it also possible for me to offer scholarships to collaborative families, which is fantastic so that families of all income ranges can uh, get access to the program and our coaches still get paid a living wage. Um, if you are interested in becoming a patron, I really encourage you to go check it out. We have recently freshened everything up, made everything slightly fancier, and now you get even more perks for your tier. Um, and we've weeded out also some perks that people weren't using and added perks that people have asked for. So I think it will be a better patron experience for everyone. I'm really excited about it. And if you haven't checked out the patron page in a while and you're sort of like teetering on should I join, shouldn't I join? First of all, you should join. But second of all, there might be some new stuff in there that will, uh, you know, wet your taste buds a little bit and make you a little bit more excited about it. If you would like to support the podcast, Patreon's also nice because you can cancel it at any time and there's no like difficulty in it. You literally just click the one button. So you can join for a couple months, check it out and then cancel. You can also now Patreon has this thing where you can um, join for a week free. So say you want to sign up to a tier you can access all of the benefits and all the content for that tier for a week completely free and then decide if you would like to still maintain membership. And so I am super happy to for folks to just pop in, see if you like it, and then decide if you want to throw the money at it or not. That is totally fine with me. I really encourage you to access those resources if it's going to be beneficial to you. And, um, you know, I wouldn't have that available if I didn't like it that way. So please feel free to join for a week download all the stuff and then leave um, if that's you know going to be helpful to you in deciding whether patron is right for you. Okay, that was a really long you know intro. So let's just dive into these five five um, sets of traits, constellations of traits, sometimes known as diagnoses that might be affecting your neurodivergent child um, that you know maybe you haven't picked up on it yet. The first one I want to talk about is alexithymia. Historically, alexithymia is defined as an inability or a significant disability or difficulty with noticing and labeling and identifying emotions, okay? So being able to have a feeling and be immediately be able to know if you're excited or angry, okay? It's a trait that occurs in a wide variety of people, but it's more prominent in the neurodivergent population. So you can be neurotypical and have alexithymia, but it's more common um, to be autistic and also have alexithymia. Um, it's known as a subclinical trait, which just means that it attaches to other diagnoses. So it doesn't exist by itself usually. It attaches to things like autism, ADHD, depression, traumatic brain injury, and a couple of other neurodivergent substance use disorder. Okay. So there are a couple of sort of bigger diagnoses that alexithymia can be attached to. Okay. Um, we have a lot of resources on alexithymia in the neurodiverging.com blog. So I'm going to link a few below to you and also in the show notes. So if you click through to the show notes, all of the links and all the research um, and everything you need to learn more about this, or to, at least to get started learning more about it will be there for you. So I really encourage you to go check those out. The thing I want to say about alexithymia is that a difficulty in labeling your emotions um, can cause or be related to a lot of other difficulties when we're looking at creating relationship between parent and child or among siblings, right? For example, that if you don't know how you feel, you're missing vital information about what's going on around you. So feelings communicate information to us on a very basic level. We feel angry when we think there's been an injustice done to us, right? We feel shamed 
when we feel like we should have done better or something's wrong. We feel excited and happy when we're looking forward to something, okay? Alexithymia means that folks are getting the physical signals of those feelings without being able to identify the feeling. So we have a whole podcast episode on this, so I don't want to go into it too much, but a really good example is excitement and anger, two wildly different feelings that give us wildly different kinds of information, but have the same physical reactions associated with them. So whether you are angry or excited, you might sweat, you might shake, you might feel kind of jittery and up and agitated and, and have a lot of energy about you, right? Those are feelings that your body produces, physical reactions that your body produces in response to external stimuli, to what's happening in your environment, right? So if something happens and you feel yourself getting sweaty and your heart is racing and you're hyper moving a lot, jittery, right? But you don't know if you feel excited or angry. How are you supposed to know how to respond to whatever made you feel that way? Okay. You're missing a vital component of information that would help you respond to your environment correctly and make you able to soothe yourself appropriately. It's also like if a parent makes you feel that, if something a parent does makes a child feel that way and the child doesn't know if they're excited or angry, right? That can make that child feel very uneasy in themselves and very uncomfortable. And that kind of gets attached to the parent, even though the parent didn't do anything wrong, right? And so knowing if your kiddo is alexithymic or not can be really valuable in figuring out if there's gaps in your relationship, what's actually happening? Why are those things happening? Okay. So this is something that there's lots of questionnaires uh, about. We have not great, but like decent research about alexithymia, and you can find lots of stuff online and you can ask your like local therapist or um, autism specialist, and they should at least know what alexithymia is, right? And be able to help you um, access resources to see if that's a, a name, a, a term that fits your kid or yourselves or anyone else in your family. Okay. So that's alexithymia. The next one I want to talk about, we talk about a lot in the podcast again. So I'm going to refer you to a lot of links down below. There's a lot of resources online for this, but this is sensory processing disorder. Now, the thing about sensory processing disorder is I have found in my work as a coach that it is something that neurotypical people by and large just completely can't understand the depth of it and can't understand how much it can affect somebody's day-to-day -day experience of the world, okay? So sensory processing disorder is also called SPD, and in some places it's called SID for sensory integration disorder, okay? So depending on where you live in the world, it might be termed slightly different. Um, it refers to the idea that you have a set of senses through which you are processing all of the information that's in your environment all the time, every hour of every day. Some of us process all that information coming in from our senses really quickly, really smoothly, no bumps, right? We just sort of, our brain does it automatically. It just goes. Some of us need to process all that information manually, where we have to actively think through and sort and make decisions about how we're going to respond to changes in airflow, heat, noise level, light level, texture, touch, taste, right? Also, part of our sensory system is our sense of balance, our sense of where where our bodies are in, in the physical world. Also, our internal sense of our bodies, like if we're hungry, if we're thirsty, if we have to pee, if we're cold, right? If we're tired, um, all of these things are, are part of your sensory processing. And it's it wildly varies in how it presents as well, which makes it tricky, right? Because different people will have different combinations of everything going on. 
But a lot of us have a lot, a really hard time understanding that we're hungry or we're thirsty or we're tired or we have to poo, right? And that's not something that I see a lot of neurotypical people ever have to consider in their day-to-day lives, right? A lot of us are bothered by textures and can't immediately identify which texture is bothering us. A lot of us, for example, I'll give you an example for me. I don't modulate temperature well. If I get cold, I literally stop being able to think. But I also can't tell that I'm cold. So it has taken me 35 years of occasionally feeling cold and immediately being swamped with lethargy and tiredness and exhaustion to be like, oh, I must be cold. And therefore, if I warm up, I will feel better and be able to function. It's not that I figured out how to feel cold. I still sometimes can't tell that I'm cold, but I have assembled this like checklist in my brain of when I feel cold, I notice these six six symptoms, right? And so if all six of these symptoms are engaged, I must feel cold and therefore I should put on a sweater, get a blanket, take a bath, whatever, right? Think about having to do that work for every single time you're hungry or thirsty or tired or cold or the wind's blowing at you or whatever. Um, Some of us don't feel pain or even um, like touch pleasure the same way as neurotypical people do. So this is a really complex thing and it presents so wildly differently among different types of people that it can be really hard to pin down. The good thing about it is that occupational therapists, a good occupational therapist has a lot of research-backed, evidence-based testing that they can do to help you figure out what your particular sensory profiles are, what those of your children are, and to help you figure out if there are things you could be doing to help balance out some of those things that are a little bit differently wired. Um, Especially in the case of like knowing where your body is in the world, being able to recognize your internal, that's the interoceptive sense of whether you're hungry or thirsty or, you know, whatever in pain. Um, And also helping you deal with external stimuli like light and sound and touch and all those things. So um, in kiddos with SPD, we often see a lot of sort of, it looks like irregular um, responses to the environment. So one day they like apples, the next day they don't like apples. (laughs) One day they'll try a new food, the next day they won't try a new food. One day they can wear socks, the next day they can't wear socks. One day they literally have six pee accidents and the next week they're fine. Sometimes, not always, it, that is indicative of a sensory processing challenge of some kind or a combination of multiple sensory processing challenges. But it, those things, if you don't know what's going on, it makes it difficult to parent because you don't know like what the behavior means. And so g- getting your kiddo screened for sensory processing challenges, talking to a, your local OT or getting a, a referral to an OT from your um, pediatrician or therapist or l- mental health professional, trusted mental health professional, um, is a really, assuming you have access, can be a really good way to Um, kind of screen for that. And if you don't have access to those medical professionals, there are still a lot of good resources online to help you like sort of start to figure it out. Now, another piece of sensory processing disorder that kind of deserves, I think, to have its own little section in this podcast is called dyspraxia. We are actually having a guest come on very soon to talk all about dyspraxia. So I will, uh, assuming, I don't know what order these things are going out, but if they have been on, I will put a link down below. And if they're not on yet, I will add the link once they're on. So keep your ears peeled for that. Um, Dyspraxia is technically a piece 
or a, a, a sub diagnosis. I'm going to mess this up, OTs. I'm sorry about the actual terminology, but it's a, a part of a larger sensory processing disorder. It's a condition where the neurons in the brain that control motor skills and sensations don't connect or sync or fire accurately. And so you end up with kiddos who appear really awkward when they're moving, who bump into things, who stumble. Um, one of my children who's dyspraxic, like constantly would run into walls when they were learning to walk because they just didn't know where their body was in space. Um, and the, the, the visual sensory information was like not making it to their brain and being interpreted in time to not walk into the wall. Um, kiddos with dyspraxia also, like if you have a kiddo who sometimes does not press strongly enough and sometimes presses way too hard, like they can't figure out how much force to give any of their muscle movements that might indicate dyspraxia. Um, and they also may have poor motor planning, poor sequencing. So doing one thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing and perceptual skills, being able to like in interpret properly the information they're getting from the environment around them. Um, so this can also be diagnosed by an occupational therapist, but the reason I really want to highlight dyspraxia in this podcast is because it's common across a bunch of different neurodiversities, including autism, ADHD, um, non-specific learning disorder, uh, dys dyslexics, uh, and a couple of other folks. And because it looks like, how do I say, it often looks like other autism or ADHD symptoms, right? We're used to seeing kiddos with ADHD and or autism who can be hyperactive, who can be looking for a lot of heavy work and wanting to like put a lot of force into their movements. Um, we often see kiddos with ADHD, especially who can't attend, who can't sit and focus on the thing that they don't want to focus on, right? Um, same thing for autistics. We often see hyper-focus, right? But difficulty focusing on stuff that we're not particularly interested in doing. Sometimes that's the ADHD or the autism or the whatever else is going on, but sometimes it's because uh, kiddos' bodies are so uncomfortable sitting still because they don't know where they are in space that they need a lot of movement to tell their inner ear and their brains where they are in the world. And so it's not that they, it's not actually that they can't attend, it's that they physically can't sit still without significant discomfort. And so again, if you have a kiddo who is, has some other neurodiverse diagnosis and is still having challenges that don't seem to line up to whatever the diagnosis is or that like you're treating, but it's not getting better. Checking for dyspraxia can be like a really solid next step in figuring out that there might be other stuff going on and OT might have some really clear, direct, kind of fast interventions for it um, to help a kiddo be more comfortable in their body so that they can attend better or not run into walls or not trip on things or not accidentally push their brother too hard or all these stuff, right? So this is something to look out for if you're, if any of this rings true for your kiddo. Um, the other thing with dyspraxia, because it's a piece of sensory processing disorder, is that it looks it's uneven. Um, it's very similar to what I said about if you have a kiddo who um, kind of does well some of the time and then has extreme challenges the other time, and it's really a diverse presentation of, of their, their difficulties, right? That some weeks they're doing great, some weeks they're having the worst time ever. Sometimes, not always, that indicates that there's something going on with the sensory um, system. And that, again, screening for SPD and especially for dyspraxia might be a, next, a good next step. Check in with your local OT. 
Okay. The fourth one I want to talk about is RSD, also known as rejection sensitivity dysphoria. I've also seen rejection sensitive dysphoria. This is again a constellation of traits. So it's not its own uh, diagnosis in the US yet. I think some people are starting to use it, but it's not like, I don't think it's in the DSM or anything yet. Um, RSD, rejection sensitivity dysphoria, is often found in folks with ADHD, folks with anxiety, folks with borderline personality disorder. Um, what else? And then I also just want to say that we know, for example, that folks with ADHD, that a lot of those folks are also autistic, right? And vice versa. And so whenever I'm saying this, like it's known in this groups of people, that doesn't mean that if you have some other diagnosis that it might not apply to you because most people with one neurodiversity have more than one neurodiversity. I think the average is about three. So there's very, not that you don't exist, you do exist, but there's very few fo folks in the world who are just autistic with nothing else. Um, a lot of us are autistic plus or ADHD plus or BPD plus, right? And um, and that's why another reason I want to do this podcast is to talk about all these um, variables and all these comorbidities that you might see, even if you just have one diagnosis right now. So rejection sensitivity dysphoria is found in these groups of ADHD, anxiety, BPD, and um. Basically, you can hear it in the name. So dysphoria is just a discomfort in your body, right? Or um, And rejection sensitivity means these folks are highly sensitive to rejection. What that plays out with in real life, like in real life, is that um, people feel rejected by another person's actions or words, even when that other person didn't mean to imply rejection in any sense. People with RSD are often mislabeled as being a bad sport or being very emotionally oversensitive. They can have sometimes more than average empathy. They can perceive rejection even when it's not meant. People with RSD often have a lot of self-criticism and negative self-talk, right? Um, that kind of, I'm not good enough. I don't do well enough. People don't like me, right? And that's again, that rejection sensitivity, this idea that the whole world, their whole community is rejecting them, pushing them away and saying that they're not good enough. And so there's a lot of internalized shame and frustration and sometimes anger felt by these folks. And the, the frustrating thing for everybody with RSD is that often, if you're talking about a family relationship, the parent is not rejecting the child, right? Um, the parent is really working very, very, very hard to help the child feel welcome, connected, understood, right? But the lack of knowledge about RSD means that if you don't have that framing for what's going on, it can be really hard to figure out, oh, kiddo is feeling rejected, even though I am not actively rejecting them, right? There's a mismatch in the communication. There's a mismatch in the profiles. And and the, the way that we need to parent kiddos with RSD is different than the way we would parent kiddos who are not struggling with that, right? And so this is a place where I really encourage folks, if you're if you have a child, perhaps very empathetic, easily overloaded by emotions and sometimes thought of as a poor sport, right? They can't handle big feelings or, or you perceive that they can't handle big feelings. Looking into RSD might be relevant to you. Um, and knowing about it can help you adjust your parenting style and even talk to your kid, depending on their age, talking to them about what their brain is doing can be really helpful in sort of validating their experience, but also helping them to recognize that people are not rejecting them. Um, that it's a perceptual difference in in their their experience of the world.
Okay. Um, neurodivergent does not currently have any articles on RSD. If you out there are an expert on RSD or, you know, in your lived experience as a person with RSD, and you would like to write an article for us, we do accept submissions and we'll pay you for them. You can find information on our website and I'll put a link below, but I am going to put a link, a couple of links in the show notes to other respected resources about rejection sensitivity disorder. So that if you want to learn more, you can go do that. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The last one I want to talk about today is PDA, pathological demand avoidance, also known as pervasive demand for autonomy. You may have heard me talk about this before. We have now a couple of podcasts and articles about it on neurodiverging, um, but it's still, I think, misunderstood. And it's really, in the U.S. especially, just coming to be recognized as a profile of autism. Most of the resources that I'm going to link for you down below that are not neurodiverging are out of the UK or Australia, just because over in those places, it has been recognized as a potential profile of autism for a little bit longer. It is just coming to prominence in the United States. As far as I am aware, we now have a US PDA society, which I think is very new within the past maybe couple of years. This is something that I would expect that many of the mental health professionals and therapists and other folks who are working with autistic plus individuals may not be aware of. And so as parents, it can be helpful if, if, if you know that this applies to your kiddo, you can go find those resources and you can even bring them to your kiddo's teachers and OTs and, and mental health professionals to help them become more educated about this profile. So pathological demand avoidance or pervasive demand for autonomy, PDA, is a profile of autism and it's often referred to as uh, like a subtype of autism. Again, I just wanna mention that there are very few autistic people who are only autistic. So although this is known currently as a subprofile of autism, in my personal opinion, um, there's not a lot of research on it yet. And I would not be surprised if there are people with other diagnoses outside of autism who have similar profiles to a PDA profile. This might be because they're autistic uh, and uh, and not diagnosed as autistic yet, or it might be that this constellation of traits um, shows up kind of in, in slightly different manifestations in other uh, neurodivergent profiles. Um, I'm just saying as a parent coach, I have met children, especially with ADHD, who have something that looks a lot like PDA, okay? Not diagnosing anyone. Um, I only mention this because I don't want folks to be, if this rings true to you, and your kiddo's not diagnosed autistic, I would still encourage you to go learn about PDA and to consider whether there might be something kind of more going on with kiddo. The other thing I'll say as a parent coach is that with all of these kind of underdiagnosed constellations of traits, but especially with PDA, we need to parent PDA kiddos completely differently than traditional parenting methods will allow. If you parent a PDA kiddo with most traditional parenting methods, you will not succeed, okay? I'm sorry, it's the truth. Collaborative parenting works. There are some other forms of democratic parenting that work for most families with PDA. But 
um, kind of the traditional sort of what are some common ones, love and logic, some of the how to parent your strong-willed child, right? Work really well with neurotypical kiddos, but not with your strong-willed neurodivergent kiddos. Or one, two, three magic, right? One, two, three magic works really well with some neurotypical kiddos. I don't particularly like it, but I've had families who've had a lot of success with it. For neurodivergent kiddos, especially PDA, one, two, three magic will break, break relationship like nothing else, right? So let me tell you more about what PDA is and what it looks like. So you know a little bit more about what I'm talking about. So again, pervasive demand for autonomy and autonomy is the piece that I really want you to hear. This refers to the idea that we as autistic people want to be able to control our own lives, that a lot of us have a lot of anxiety around new things coming into our environment, new people, new sensory experiences, um, a change in our plans coming coming up, right? We have trouble with transitions. So a lot of us have significant anxiety and insecurity and fear around uh, the new, the novel, right? And we want to be able to control our own lives and our own experiences of the world as best we possibly can. And what happens is that for children and also adults, I'm a PDA adult, this manifests as basically what I call the automatic no, right? Anytime you come up to us and you say, hey, um, I really want to go to the grocery store. And we didn't have it in our heads that that was going to be the plan today. And we're not ready to deal with the grocery store and all the visual stimuli and all the auditory stimuli and getting into the car and changing our plan about what we were going to do instead of going to the grocery store. What we do is we freak out. We go into sort of freeze response and we automatically, up here comes Leo. Hi. No. All right. We're going to do this with Leo here because I have a client in like five minutes and I would love to finish this podcast for you. So enjoy this kitty head. Um, what this does is that it pushes us into threat response, into a freeze. And we go, no, 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 no. I cannot handle any new things. No. Okay. Automatic. No. Once we calm down and we re-regulate and we think about it, a lot of us are able to be like, actually, you know what? I could handle the grocery store. Let me shuffle some stuff around and let me kind of process and think through it. And we can kind of get to the point where we can say yes, right? But if you have a kiddo who anytime you ask them to do anything, refuses, avoids, ignores, retreats, right? You might, might, might be dealing with a PDA profile kiddo. So when you have a kiddo with PDA, with a PDA profile, you end up with a child who's driven to avoid everyday demands and expectations who constantly negotiates for every little thing you ask them to do, <laughs> no matter how small it is, a lot of negotiation about it, um, who is potentially quite rigid in their expectations and how they want things to be. Um, this can extend to not just like their feelings about things, but also physical manifestations of objects. If their sandwich needs to be a certain way, if their plate needs to look a specific way. When one of my kiddos was like three, I actually saw this pop up on my Facebook memories the other day, which is the only reason I remember, but I wrote it down. Thank you, past Danielle, that um, one of my kiddos had apparently, past Danielle remembers, a two-hour meltdown because I moved their oatmeal from where they put it on the table. I moved it two inches forward so it wouldn't fall off the edge, right? Being a parent, trying to avoid mess, whatever. But I didn't ask them before I do it. So I just, I touched their bowl. I moved it this much. And that was enough in her, with the state of her nervous system as it was, being very highly dysregulated and her anxiety response being as it was, to throw her into a meltdown for two hours, right? So this is an example of how parent can be doing their absolute best, right? And, and 
think nothing of what's going on. And child can be having a completely different experience of the world. And, you know, you do something that you think is helpful or beneficial or even neutral, and you get this high negative response for it, right? The response isn't even at you. It's that they know that the world is unsafe for them and you have just proven it further, right? By moving the oatmeal two inches, okay? This is really hard for parents and families and kiddos. For everybody in the family, this is really hard. Um, and this is an example of, right, behavior is communication, that when we see responses that seem to outsize what's actually going on, there's usually something else underneath. And these five forms of underdiagnosed traits related to neurodiversity might be the thing that's underneath that's creating the gap between what you want to be happening and what's actually happening with kiddo, right? We have miscommunication gaps. We have sensory challenges. We have all these things going on that depending on your neurotype and what's going on in your brain, and then depending on your kiddo's neurotype, if you have differences, and you probably do, right? You might not be able to perceive everything that's going on for them. The other cool thing about all these five things is that adults have them too, right? If you're my age, or if you're in even in your 20s, if you have children, if you're old enough to have children, this stuff, all five of these are still hugely underdiagnosed and in some cases not even diagnosable in the United States, hopefully yet. And so, you know, if you're an adult who's bumping into things all the time, go check out if you have dyspraxia. If you're an adult who has an automatic no, perhaps look into pervasive demand for autonomy and see if it might suit you, right? If you have significant trouble communicating with your partner, your romantic interest um, around one of you feeling rejected all the time, you may want to look into rejection sensitivity dysphoria, right? Um, as always, you know, self-diagnosis is valid, but there are so many good resources on these things and there are people who are specializing in them. And so if you can access, I know it's not always possible, I get that, but if you can access actual trained folks with this information, um, they can help you sort everything out. Because again, all five of these things are attached to other forms of diagnosis. And so if you have been, and many of us have been misdiagnosed um, or multiply misdiagnosed, right? Knowing whether your RSD is attached to ADHD or BPD might really change your treatment plan, the interventions you choose for yourself or your child or your partner or whoever, right? And so get help if you can, is basically what I'm saying, okay? I hope you all have a wonderful day and I really appreciate you tuning in today. If you have questions, I will refer you first to the show notes where I have put as many links as I could possibly find that I trust in there for you to have a read and to have a poke and to see what reads true to you. I will also say you are welcome to email me. I will always write you back, though it may take a little while, depending on what my inbox looks like, because I'm a neurodivergent person too. Um, and then I will refer you to our group coaching programs. We have several group coaching programs that run multiple times a year, where you can explore your own experience with other neurodivergent people of the same ilk, whether you are a parent and are interested in the collaborative families program, or whether you're an individual who doesn't, or even if you do have children and you want to explore your own experience of neurodiversity in the world, you might be interested in From Defeated to Inspired, which will be starting again soon too. So um, I'll put links for those there. I hope this episode has been helpful. I hope you've learned something. Please share it with others if you think it might be helpful for them. Please subscribe to the things. Please leave comments. It helps the algorithm. <laughs> I know it's silly, but it does really help. And I so appreciate you all. Thank you again to my patrons for making this possible and for collaborative families 
clients as well for encouraging me to record this podcast. I hope it's good for you and I will see you in the next one. Bye. Does your father know you're listening to this podcast? Well, when you're done, why don't you stop by and check out a show that is 100% dad-approved, Dadages. Hi there, I'm Chad Higgins. If you're looking for useful insights and practical advice you can actually apply to work, family, education, philanthropy, and just life in general, check out Dadages. That's D-A-D-A-G-E-S, wherever you listen to your podcasts.